Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 18. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisherman.com slash rogues. Special guest performer, Danielle McCarville. For more information about Danielle, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury podcast website. Chapter 29 Soon, brother, said the man known as Rolf. Soon we will be home after all these years. Soon we will be able to call one another by our true names and embrace the master. We have indeed been away a long time, the man known as Gustin replied. They stood together at the prow of Gullwing, as the small harbor that protected the town of Barmia from the crashing seas came into view. The land reached around the calm, still harbor like an embrace, and the arms ended in the raw, callous knuckles of thundering reefs. Only a narrow, treacherous channel allowed ships to pass into the harbor, and an inexperienced captain could easily gut his vessel on the sharp coral. Green rolling hills surrounded the village with chalk-white cliffs standing as a bastion against the surf about a league to the east, and the verdant patchwork of fields and stone-walled pastures rising into the hills beyond. Spring vegetable crops swelled and ripened. Fresh-plowed fields of rich, dark soil awaited the yearly seed like fecund, faithful wives. In the distance, the jagged purple peaks of the mountains, rising like a palisade separating Barmia from the rest of Fartha, on the crest of a ridge beside the town, overlooking the harbor, he spotted a lone shepherd with his flock of shaggy coons, nearing the time for shearing. A flash of memory in Rolf's mind of his father shearing their small flock, the son looking on, frightened by the coons' fear. There was fear, but nevertheless a happy memory. A long ago, almost forgotten time. He had no family now. The world was purer with his infidel mother in the grave. I am tired of this girl's endless mewling, Rolf snarled. I hope the master breaks her quickly. He will show her what it means to be a woman. She's young. I have seen the blood on her thighs. She is the ripest plum, ready to be plucked. Gustin shrugged. Rolf's heart swelled. To pray in a real temple. To smell the incense. Gustin barked a short laugh. Ha! Such a poetic soul. I'm looking forward to fresh non-bread hot from the oven after morning prayers. Rolf's eyes glittered. Yes, and fresh non. There is no real non to be found anywhere among the infidels. It is good to be home. Yes, it is good to be home. And best of all, we return in triumph. Why are you still speaking the infidel tongue? Snapped a voice behind them in their native tongue. They stiffened and the short, dark figure of their Shalat bin stepped up to them. 
His eyes, like chips of cold obsidian, speared them from under black brows. Since they had departed Norgard, their shallot master had allowed his black beard to grow and thicken. He looked more like a true farthy now. He stood with his linen robes of earthen browns and pale ivory rippling in a gust of sea breeze. They did not know his name. To them, he was only Shalot Bin. Gustan and Rolf stood straight and faced him. Rolf said, Apologies, Shalot Bin. We have spent too much time among the infidels. We have bad habits. You are home now. The infidel speech sullies your mouths. The man's voice was not harsh, but an underlying steel eliminated any need for harshness. We are home, home at last. Yes, Shalat Bin, they chorused. Praise be to Sadim. Gullwing struck its sails and approached the harbor under oars to avoid the reefs. The galley slid through the gap in the reefs and into the calm waters of the harbor. Several fishing boats were moored against Barmia's four long piers. The sun hung low against the sea behind them, and the deep purples of Inanan's evening gown spread across the eastern sky, heralded by Malim and Sadim, the two prophets, rising in their glory from the depths of night to herald the mother's coming. Sadim, the elder brother, the great prophet, the more worthy of the two, gleamed his brilliant orange-crimson glow, steady and bright against the purpling heavens. As the two men looked at Sadim's gleaming visage, they made holy circlet symbols over their hearts, mouths, and foreheads, that their hearts might be pure, their words true, and their thoughts righteous. Rolf could not recall such elation. He was home, among righteous people, with success in his fist. From Barmia, it would be an easy journey to the high temple, where the master awaited them with the highest blessings and streams of milk and honey. Jum Odenth, captain of the Gullwing, approached them and said, What will you have us do with your cargo, sirs? Rolf said, Have the crate carried ashore. We will have it loaded onto a wagon. So you'll be leaving her in there, then? The captain's voice was carefully neutral but the downturn of his flabby mouth revealed that the thought displeased him. "'That is none of your business, Captain,' Rolf growled. "'As you wish, sirs. And the remaining gold?' "'Awaits you on shore, as promised.' "'Very well.' The galley crossed the harbor with the crewmen pumping the long, heavy oars until the vessel slid up beside one of the docks. Shalat Bin, Rolf, and Gustin were the first down the gangplank. When their feet landed upon the hard-packed earth of the dockside, they knelt together, pressed their foreheads against the earth, and kissed the ground. The harbormaster approached and bowed his head in reverence. He made the holy signs over his heart, mouth, and forehead. You are most welcome, pilgrims of the most holy. Shalat Bin spoke. We are most happy to be here in this sacred place, sir. We have been away for many months on unholy soil. Is there anything you require, food, drink, rest, all is yours for the asking? We will require all of those things, but first we need a wagon for our cargo and baggage. Of course, immediately, most holy ones. I will have a wagon brought to take you to Barmiyah Temple, and I will also inform the abbot of your arrival. Many thanks for your hospitality, sir, 
I will see to it that the master hears of your loyalty and piety. The harbor master flushed with pride. Thank you, O most holy ones, thank you. The bock-drawn wagon appeared soon afterward, and the gull-winged sailors saw to it that their passengers' baggage in the wooden crate containing their cargo were neatly stacked on board the wagon. As Rolf stood nearby, he thought he heard quiet weeping coming from within the crate. He was not surprised. When the three of them arrived at the temple, it was full dark, but the temple blazed with warmth and lamplight as if a celebration were imminent. Rolf could hardly take the smile from his face at the sight of Barmia Temple, the last place the great prophet had rested before embarking across the sea into the arms of the Moon Mother. The temple was a blockish, trapezoidal structure four stories tall, weathered stone walls encrusted with moss and lichen, ancient blankets of deep green vines that opened with brilliant white flowers every morning to symbolize the new day's purity and the righteousness of the great prophet. Narrow lamplit windows glowed like half-lidded roomy eyes from behind the veil of vines. But the entrance blazed with light and warmth and struck a spark in Rolf's heart that burst into flame. He laughed. The abbot awaited them in the gateway to the temple. He cast a dark, slightly hunched silhouette, surrounded by the glow from within like the fervent heart of their faith itself. They dismounted the wagon, and the abbot welcomed them with open arms, kissed them each on the mouth, on the forehead, and laid his pious hand over their hearts. He blessed them and thanked them for their sacrifice, even though he knew nothing about them. Their clothing told him all he needed to know. He took them inside. Welcome, most holy ones, to the great prophet's final resting place on earth. When I received word that a ship had docked bearing three of the brotherhood of Ibsatha, I was so pleased. You grace us with your presence. He walked along a line of acolytes and lesser priests, kneeling with their heads to the floor. The abbot was a man on the verge of tumbling into old age. There was still vigor in his step and strength in his voice, but years had lined the skin on his face, and he bore a thin wattle under his dark, salted beard. "'Your timing is fortunate,' the abbot continued. "'You have arrived just before our dinner hour, "'and we were able to prepare a splendid feast "'for your return to holy soil. "'Come, let us go to my chambers until the feast is prepared, "'where we can talk over Kalf.' "'Ah,' said Shalat Bin, "'Kalf! We have not drunk Kalf in far too many years.' "'Indeed,' said the abbot, raising an eyebrow. "'Have you truly been so far from home?' They mounted a narrow, spiraling stone staircase, and continued upward until they reached the summit of the temple, the abbot's private chamber. Inside, they sat on simple woven mats on the polished wooden floor. They had no sooner seated themselves when a young acolyte bowed and shuffled into the chamber, carrying a tray laden with a carafe of steaming hot cough and the four small porcelain cups. The acolyte poured each cup with practiced precision and formally presented it to each of them, abbot first and then according to their seating location, which indicated their station. They took the proffered cups of thick, rich brown liquid, held the cups to their foreheads in a moment of thanks to the gods, and drank simultaneously the first ceremonial sip. The hot, rich bitterness of the cough rolled across Rolf's tongue and turned his skin to chicken flesh. He was truly home. "'My holy name is Varaz,' said the abbot. "'May I have the honor of knowing yours?' Shalat Bin answered first with a proper response. 
I have had no true name save Shalat Bin since I took the master's vows. I have forgotten the name my father gave me. His sole purpose was to lead those under his authority and to serve the master, and the power of his name reflected this. Rolf felt a moment of hesitation as he dredged the long, unused name from the depths of his memory. I am Adon. I am Najath, said his longtime companion. Adon had forgotten Najath's given name. It had been so long since they were inducted into the Brotherhood. They had been little more than boys. May the great prophet shine on your names and your ancestors, the abbot said in the sing-song cant of the holy rites. And on yours, the three chorused in response. The abbot said, I will not expect you to breach any of your order's secrecy, but please do indulge an old man with some stories of the world. We do the prophet's work, and the work is never done to keep the people pious and faithful. What of the wide world? Shalat bin said, The world is full of infidels, schemers, and sinners, your holiness. We have been on far shores for far too many years. We have forgotten the taste of good cough and the sound of our ancestral tongue. Now we return at the behest of the master himself, bearing a secret prize. A prize? Shalat bin smiled. An infidel girl. A glint of interest sparkled in the abbot's eye. A girl? Where is she? How old is she? She is thirteen and locked in a box outside. She needs food and water. We wouldn't want her to starve so close to the master's hands. I will have her needs seen to. May I ask, without offense, who is she? Without offense, I must decline to answer, Your Holiness. I am sorry. The abbot nodded and shrugged, sipping his drink. Such intrigues stir the imagination of an old man. Forgive me for asking. You know that your master has my unconditional obedience. Now that the abbot had taken another drink, it was acceptable for the rest of them to do so, and they did. The abbot said, So, what are your plans now? We will rest tonight and join your feast. The great mother knows we could stand a bit of true farthy cooking. On the morrow, we will depart for the high temple with our prize. I trust that Barmia Temple will allow us the use of two good mounts. The abbot grinned, revealing the great gaps between his long, yellowed teeth. Of course, Shalat Ben, it is our pleasure to do the work of the prophets. Adon looked at the abbot and was surprised to detect something else lurking below the man's friendly and pious demeanor. Not disloyalty, but there was a glint in the man's eye that reminded Adon of the infidels he had so recently left behind. He suppressed a scowl, which would be incredibly rude in these circumstances. He was well practiced at maintaining his mask of stone. He had spent so many years attributing all of mankind's evils to infidels and their unchained desires that seeing the same kind of look in the eyes of His Holiness, the abbot of Barmia Temple, set his teeth on edge. The deliciousness of the cup of cough in his palm had lost its appeal. Bella woke from her fitful sleep within the endless dark of her stinky box. She remembered the rough tumble from the ship to what must have been a wagon. 
the rumble as the wagon traversed earthen streets and cobblestones, and finally being lifted from the wagon and carried somewhere. Her heart had beaten faster with every transition, and the knowledge that she was getting nearer and nearer to her ultimate fate. Around her had been a swarm of voices speaking farthy. She had listened so carefully. She thought her box must have been taken somewhere indoors, because the echoes of sounds outside changed, and the box sounded as if it had been laid on a wooden floor. Eventually, the voices quieted, and her box was thrown open. An imperious voice called her out in heavily accented cuskin. Out, and be quick. She slid out of the box as best she could and pulled herself upright, her back and legs protesting at being uncurled with the side of the box. She faced the man who stood before her. He was dressed in heavy robes of white and brown, chased with golden thread. An old man with a stern face, sparse gray hair and thick black beard salted with gray. His nose stood forth like a hatchet from the hard plains of his cheekbones. His eyes scrutinized her up and down, and his nose wrinkled at her stench. She looked down at herself, smeared with her own filth and blood, wearing the same shapeless shift she had been wearing since her capture. Another man stepped up beside him, the one she recognized as Rolf and Guzden's superior from the ship. The two men spoke briefly to one another in a babble of Farthy. Finally, the older man said, You will be given great honor, infidel slave. Privy, bath, and fresh clothes. You cannot be presented to the Holy One this way. Two young Farthy men stepped up. The older man said, Go with them. The two acolytes waited for her to follow. She took a tentative step, and her knees buckled. She collapsed at their feet, suppressing sobs of shame, fear, and frustration. Get up, barked the older man. No one moved to help her. They seemed reluctant to touch her. She mustered all of her strength, gathered herself up, and stood. With sheer force of concentration and will, she took a step. Then another. Then another. She felt like a newly pouched Kalad, its legs still undeveloped and unable to carry its weight. She followed the young men as best she could. The acolytes failed to conceal their distaste. Her hair hung bedraggled around her face, filthy, encrusted with days-old dried blood and vomit. They took her down narrow stone passageways into a tiny austere room. The room contained no windows, only an ancient brass chamber pot, a large wooden tub, a copper basin, and a fat wooden spigot sprouting from the wall above the tub. She opened the spigot, and a tremendous gush of tepid water burst forth into the tub. She was so thirsty she immediately forced her lips into the stream and drew a deep draught. It tasted vaguely coppery, but it was the sweetest thing she had tasted in a long time. Using the chamber pot felt strange. She had become so accustomed to relieving herself in the straw under the watchful eyes of box and chickens. A bath. She was so filthy that she did not care the water was not warm. There was even a small lump of soap. 
Oh, thank the Moon Mother for small favors. It took a long time for her to scrub the filth from her body and her hair, and the water soothed the pain in her scourge wounds, making her feel almost like a person again, not a ragged, tortured doll. She took her time about it. If they were going to beat her for being slow, she was going to eke out the tiniest portion of enjoyment she could. When she finished the bath, the water in the tub was as cloudy and unappealing as the filth she had washed off. She stood shivering and naked, but fresh and clean for the first time in how long she could not guess. To her astonishment, her old soiled garments were gone, and a fresh shift rested on the floor near the door. Someone had opened the door while she was naked and she had not noticed. But no matter. She would not waste what little strength she had on pride or modesty. The bath had granted her enough strength to muster some dignity. She was growing accustomed to standing upright again, and when she opened the door to face the two bookish, sour-faced acolytes, she did so with her feet steady and her hands demurely clasped in front of her. Come, one of them said. His head was shaven, but his beard was a short, patchy scruff around his jawline. They led her to another small room, this one more like a cell, in a corner of the building far removed from her box, lit only by the sliver of vine-filtered starlight peeking through the narrow window. The air smelled of cold stone, and the musty old mat rolled up in one corner, but also the lush greenery and warm air outside. She had never smelled such wonderful air before. She entered the room without protest, and they slammed the door behind her, throwing the outside bolt. She went to the window, turned her face up to the stars, and whispered a plea to Inanan to let her die before the horrors she knew were coming grew unbearable. She stood for a long time with her face in the high, narrow window smelling the fresh air, feeling the breath of the wind on her cheeks, listening to the rustle of the leaves, and wondering if she would see Javin and her mother when she died. Hours later, after she had eaten the bowl of coarse barley porridge and drunk enough water to make her belly flop about like a fresh-landed fish, she lay asleep on her coarse sleeping mat with the thin linen blanket. The outer bolt awakened her, sliding and clacking. She sat up and rubbed her eyes, blinking against the light of the oil lamp in the hand of the priest who stood in her cell door. He was dressed much like the acolytes and the older man, but she had never seen his face before. He had close-set black eyes set under deep brows. Come. She stood up, steadying herself against the wall for a moment, rubbing her eyes with the other hand, and silently shuffled toward him. In the narrow hallway, he forced her to walk before him, and he took her to a brightly lit room decorated with religious tapestries, icons, idols, and paraphernalia. So many symbols she recognized, the golden sun disk of Helion and silver moon disk of Inanon, jeweled marble idols of their sons, Chib and Cham, tapestries depicting Chib's torture at the hands of Hec, 
the dark sister of Helion and goddess of night and the underworld. So many familiar things to the religion in which she was raised, yet made vastly different by the addition of icons for Melim and Sadim, the farthy prophets. So many riches here in this place, with its gold and jewels glittering in the lamplight. They had entered the chamber through a small side door, but her guide took her through a set of large double doors into a spacious foyer where she saw the heavy outer doors of the temple. He shoved her into a small side room that looked like a cleaning closet or storage room. Brooms and mops and wooden buckets, sacks of what looked like flowers or meal, barrels and tools. Tools. Some of those tools had sharp points and edges, but she did not have time to study them. The man thrust her further inside and lit another small lamp ensconced in the wall. He gave her a stare so fierce and hateful that any thought of resistance evaporated like water on a hot steel plate, and she sat down timidly on a stack of sacks. The man did not take his gaze from her, but continued to pierce her with his hot black eyes. The hour must have been late. Night creatures called out from the dark crevices and nooks around her. The acolytes and priests were all in their cells on the opposite side of the temple, except for this man. Then the older priest with the gilded robes appeared in the doorway. The first man bowed and spoke with extreme subservience before gesturing the older man inside the room and departing. The chief priest stood in the doorway, and his eyes fell upon her, mouth slightly open. His red tongue licked his gaunt lips. You are very beautiful, for an infidel, the man said in heavily accented Cuscan. Uneasiness squirmed across her shoulders and up her neck. The man walked into the room. Stand up. She stood, keeping her eyes downcast, a stronger tide of fear building in her belly. He stood before her. His gaze trailed over her hair, now hanging loose about her shoulders, moved down her throat, lingering on her budding breasts, moving down to her belly, her legs, and back up again. What do you want of me? Silence, slave, he snapped. I am not a slave, she retorted. I am Lady Bella Woolstone, and the back of his hand smashed across her cheek. She sprawled back against the heavy sacks. You will not speak, he snarled as he moved closer, grasping her arms and pressing her back onto the stack. One of his gnarled hands found her wrist. His breath began to quicken and grow husky. She struggled, but she was so weak, so very weak. His hands pulled hers toward his loins, held hers up against his body and under his robe she could feel something stiffen and move. She screamed. His other hand slapped her again, driving her head to the side. Silence, or you will never see the light of another dawn. The hand fell across her mouth, stifling her scream, clamping over her chance to draw breath, and still the other hand held her against a hard shaft between the robes. She knew what it was and what he intended to do, but she had never seen what one looked like when engorged. Images of flesh-colored hairy serpents writhing into her mind, 
and the sickening feeling in her guts turned into a ball of hot fury that would sear that serpent if it threatened her. She twisted her head to the side and screamed again, No! No! He was thrusting his shaft against her hand, struggling to keep his hand over her mouth. Then he released her hand and fumbled with his robes, bearing her back against the sacks, forcing her knees apart. With her free hand, she started beating on his arm, but her blows felt as feeble as a babe's. She would not be able to resist him. Her feet came off the floor as he pushed her back onto the sacks and forced his way between her legs, drawing up her shift. She kicked and flailed against him, but she was too weak. She could not resist a man, even an old man. No, don't, no, please! She screamed around his hand, hearing the strange echo through the ancient stone halls of this house of piety and worship. His entire body spasmed, and his hands went limp. His eyes rolled back in his head. A wet gurgle emanated from his sagging mouth. His legs collapsed under him like sodden cloth. As he fell, he revealed another figure standing behind him, a grim, steel-faced man wearing a close-fit black shirt and trousers, his face smeared with soot. He held a blood-smeared knife in his hand that slurped out of the back of her assailant's skull as the body collapsed to the floor. His eyes were blue. He was not farthy. Bella? She nodded quickly. Who are you? Doesn't matter, the man said in perfect cuskin, holding a finger to his lips. Come, we're here to take you home. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the Donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.